All right, guys, if you would open your Bibles up to John chapter 7. Today we finish up John chapter 7. Um, as you're turning there, one thing I've really begun to appreciate about the Gospel of John in a, as a whole, but more specifically about John chapter 7, is how packed full of irony it is. Uh, the more I've begun to, to dig through this, this book, the more I've begun to see these ironies played out in this gospel, and the more that I've begun to dig into these ironies, the more convicted I've been personally. And so this week I've been wrestling through these ironies, and I think John gives them to us for the purpose of one, first and foremost, to show us the unadulterated truth of Jesus, who Jesus is, what he's come to accomplish. But I think also they show us the unadulterated hypocrisy that is found in the life of his audience, the religious leaders, the crowd, uh, they're very hypocritical, which should reveal to us that we too are very hypocritical, which should, most importantly, expose to us our greatest need, which is a Savior, which is Jesus. And so we're never quite as righteous as we think. We're never quite as holy as we think. And so therefore, we desperately need Jesus um, and so I, this, um, this chapter is truly remarkable in communicating that. And so today we finish John chapter 7. If you remember, all of John chapter 7 is one fluid story. John, these chapters, specifically John chapter 5, all really one fluid story. All of John chapter 6 is one fluid story. And now all of John 7 is one fluid story that takes place during what time? Quiz for you all. Feast of Booths, very good. Um, that, that was kind of a unanimous response. So Andrew gets the credit, but everybody else gets bonus points as well. And so, yes, this is during the time of the Feast of Booths. And so that's very important for us to understand as we work through this chapter because it really brings to life what's going on during this chapter and during this time. So the Feast of Booths would have been one of three pilgrimage feasts. Um, Passover, Pentecost, and Feast of Booths, meaning that Jews were required to travel to Jerusalem to observe this feast. So it would have been a, a large crowd at this location during the time of the story that we're reading. Um, and the Feast of Booths was a week-long celebration, a week-long national campout, uh, where they would have stayed in booths outside, um, observing the stars, remembering God's faithfulness. It was more specifically a time to celebrate God's complete provision of the harvest present tense. And so God had provided the harvest for them. They've reaped the harvest. And so this is a time to celebrate how God has faithfully provided for them present tense. And then also, more specifically, it was a time to celebrate and remember God's faithfulness to Israel during their time in the wilderness, how God did not leave them during that time and was with them and provided for them miraculously during their time in the wilderness. And so uh, all of that would have been going on during this time. Uh, so this would have been a time that uh, showed us that while the religious leaders in the crowd celebrated God dwelling with them in the wilderness, Ironically, they did not realize that God was standing before them in Jesus, right? And so Jesus tells the crowd early in John chapter 7 that they don't see and recognize him as the Son of God because they do not personally know God. So they're, they're hypocritical in that sense. If their will was to do God's will, then they would see and recognize Jesus as the Son of God, but they don't. 
And so Jesus is exposing this hypocrisy. Their heart is far from God, and so therefore they do not recognize Jesus, and they are beginning to persecute him. And we're also then reminded of the religious leader's desire to kill Jesus, which birthed back in John chapter 5 when Jesus healed an invalid on the Sabbath. And so this was a big no-no in their eyes. But ironically, in John chapter 7, Jesus shows them that they're guilty of doing the very same thing in circumcising on the Sabbath. And so Jesus exposes their hypocrisy once again. And so Jesus was essentially showing them that if they want to kill him for healing on the Sabbath, then they're going to have to kill themselves for circumcising on the Sabbath. Jesus is doing the exact same thing that they're doing. They're walking in hypocrisy. They're judging by appearances, but not with right judgment. And the more we progress through this gospel, the more we will see this hypocritical judgment exposed from the crowd and the religious leaders. Now, some people will eventually believe in Jesus, as we've seen. Uh, Others will want to arrest Jesus, but no one will be able to touch Jesus um, because his hour has not yet come. So the Pharisees hear about those who are beginning to believe in Jesus. They hear of this commotion, and they get frustrated. They send officers to arrest him, but Jesus doesn't budge. In fact, he continues to preach. He continues to proclaim And he tells the Pharisees that he'll eventually go to a place that they cannot go to. And so he says they will seek him and they will not be able to find him. And the Pharisees then mockingly ask, okay, where is he going to go that we can't go? Is he going to go and teach the Greeks? Right? So the, the only place that was so repulsive that they couldn't imagine going to would have been to the Greeks, to the Gentiles. So is he going to go there? No. He's going to return to the Father who sent him. And they're not going to be able to find him because of their unbelief and hard hearts. And and so when they die, they're going to die in their unbelief, and it's going to be too late at that point to find him. But ironically, after Jesus' ascension, after he returns to the Father, he will send his people the Holy Spirit. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, they will go out and make disciples of all nations. And so the very thing that they're repulsed of will be the very thing that the gospel um, will begin to display. And then last week, on the last day of the feast, during this feast that celebrates God's dwelling with his people and him miraculously providing food and water for them in the wilderness, during a feast that celebrates God's provision for his people, now Jesus ironically and masterfully stands up and exclaims, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. So he's saying, hey guys, I know that your barns are full. I know that your wells are full. I know that you have been provided for. But if any of you still lack, if any of you are still thirsty, come to me and drink. In the middle of a feast that celebrates God's provision, he asks if anyone is lacking. And then he extends to them the invitation to come to him and drink. And not only could he satisfy their thirst, but he says that out of their hearts would flow rivers, plural, of living water. So this is an invitation to take something that is dry, lacking, and lifeless and make it life-giving. And John gives us clarification that he's talking about the Holy Spirit. So if you come to Jesus in belief, God won't simply dwell with you, but he will now dwell in you with the Holy Spirit. If you believe in Jesus, you will receive 
the Holy Spirit, and from the Holy Spirit dwelling in you will flow rivers of living water, meaning the fruit of the Spirit will um, flow from your life and be a blessing to both you and to others. And so a river of love, a river of joy, a river of peace, of patience, of kindness, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control, these things will flow from you and be a blessing to others. Belief in Jesus is not merely intellect alone. Belief in Jesus leads to life-giving actions that come from the Holy Spirit that dwells within the life of a believer. So have you come to belief in Jesus? If so, out of your heart will flow rivers of living water. We saw that last week. Well, now as we continue to read through this gospel and finish up this chapter, we will see more irony play out in this passage. There's great confusion centered around Jesus and who he is, what he's come to accomplish. But in the middle of this confusion, there's one group of people that are more certain than anyone else about who Jesus is, and that's the religious leaders. And ironically, this group is certain that they know who Jesus is, but the reality is, is that they don't know who Jesus is. And we will see yet again that they're not judging with right judgment. Their judgment is based strictly on appearances, and we'll see that played out. And so as we work through this passage, we'll see ironically that they are the ones who are deceived more than anyone else. Ironically, all of their accusations that are made against Jesus are true of themselves. And we'll see today that the self-righteous have very little concern with truth. And so because of their self-righteousness, they're unwilling to drudge with right judgment. And our passage today will once again force us to survey the evidence surrounding Jesus and decide for ourselves who Jesus is. So let's dive in. So rather than reading this passage all in one sitting, we're going to read it in two chunks. So we're going to first read verses 40 through 44, unpack that, and then we'll read verses 45 through 52 and unpack that. So let's read that. When they heard these words, so when they heard Jesus stand up and exclaim, if anyone's thirsty, come to me and drink. Some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a div division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. So in verse 43, John tells us that there's a division among the crowd surrounding who Jesus is, right? So that kind of uh, gives us an idea of what's taking place in this passage. So following Jesus' bold invitation, come to me and drink, uh, the crowd's beginning to lay their cards on the table and show who they believe Jesus is. And not everyone's in agreement. First, in verse 40, we see that some of the people heard Jesus' words, and they think that he's the prophet, right? This isn't the first time that we've seen this title, the prophet, in the Gospel of John. Nor is it the first time that we've seen someone or some people identify Jesus as this prophet. Uh, back in John chapter 1, we saw the religious leaders come to John the Baptist and ask him if he was the prophet, right? And John the Baptist essentially shakes his, his head and says, nope, I'm not the one. That's Jesus. I'm the forerunner who came to prepare the way, not the, not the vehicle, but one who came to prepare the way for the Messiah, right? And then we see back in John chapter 6, so last chapter, 
after Jesus miraculously feeds this crowd in the wilderness, after he provides bread and fish for them, the crowd's beginning to make connections with Jesus and Moses, and they say, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. So we see them think, okay, John the Baptist is the prophet. John the Baptist says, nope, that's Jesus. And now in John chapter 6, we see the crowd saying, okay, yeah, Jesus is the prophet. And so they connected Jesus' miraculous provision in the wilderness with God's miraculous provision in the wilderness through Moses, right? So in claiming that Jesus is the prophet means that they're connecting Jesus to the Old Testament prophecy found in Deuteronomy chapter 18, where Moses says this, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, like Moses, from among you, from your brothers, it is to him you shall listen. So ecstatic, back in John chapter 6, they thought that they had found the prophet that Moses prophesied about. And Jesus at that point then had their attention. They, it is to him that they shall listen. They begin to listen to him. He is the prophet. Well, Jesus then leaves the crowd. If you remember that story, he leaves the crowd. He goes across, walks across the sea, goes to Capernaum. Um, and then he begins to proclaim to the crowd that found him the next day that he's the bread of life that came down from heaven. They didn't like that message. And so that led to them complaining, grumbling, and then eventually leaving. So where they should have listened, they complained, they grumbled, and they left. As quickly as he gained their attention in the wilderness, he lost their attention in the synagogue in Capernaum. They then, with the disciples, they left him to the point because he claims to be the bread of life that came down from heaven. Well, now, similarly, Jesus' invitation during the Feast of Booths to come to him and drink reminds the crowd of Moses once again. Right? So where they were previously provided bread in the wilderness, which reminded them of God's provision in the wilderness, they're reminded now of God miraculously providing water for his people in the wilderness. So Jesus' invitation, come to me and drink, reminds them of Israel in the wilderness being thirsty. On several occasions in the Exodus narrative, God miraculously provided water for Israel in the wilderness. In Exodus chapter 17, for example, jot that down in your notes and you can go back to it later. We see the people thirst for water. They're thirsty, kind of like I am at this moment in time. They're thirsty and they begin to grumble against Moses. God then tells Moses, go strike a rock and from this rock, water will come forth. Moses does so. God miraculously provides for his people, reminding them that the Lord is with them. Um, we see a, a similar situation, I believe, in Numbers chapter 20. I, I had that in my notes, but I deleted it. But there's, there's so much symbolism in that act right there that should point our attention to Jesus that we don't have time to um, dig into. But you see in the midst of a dry and barren land, a hopeless situation where there's no water, where there's no life, God tells Moses, go strike the rock and from the stricken rock will flow life, will flow water. We'll parallel that to the gospel in the midst of a hopeless, dry area. Christ, the rock, is stricken, and from his death on the cross flows life, flows eternal life. So many parallels that are found in uh, these two situations. But during the Feast of Booths, during a time to celebrate God's provision for his people in the wilderness, Jesus invites the people, come to me and drink. And this proclamation reminds part of the crowd, okay, Jesus is the prophet. They exclaim, this really is the prophet. 
They're thinking there's too many similarities between Jesus and Moses. The prophecy that Moses gives, that God gives through Moses, has to be true of Jesus. And so therefore, he has our attention, and they are listening closely. Then another part of the crowd says this is the Christ. We learned a couple weeks ago that Christ means anointed one or Messiah. Uh, and so the anointed one is divinely set apart by God for a specific task. And so in Luke 4, we see Jesus identify himself as this anointed one, as this Christ who has come to proclaim good news for the poor and to set the captives free. And so Jesus is therefore the one who is capable of setting men and women free from bondage, free from slavery. Jesus is the one who is sent by God to rescue, redeem, and restore anyone who comes to him in belief. Jesus is the Messiah that the Old Testament has prophesied about. Now, although it seems like the crowd uh, thinks that the prophet and the Christ are two separate people, we now know that that is Jesus. Both are true of Jesus. Jesus is the prophet that Moses prophesies about, and Jesus is the Christ that the Old Testament prophets prophesy about. He is both are true of him. So both of these groups of people have recognized and connected Jesus as the one whom the Old Testament has prophesied about. But then another part of the crowd enters the scene. And they're shaking their head and they're saying, no, this can't be the Christ. Look at the latter part of verse 41 and verse 42. They say this, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem? the village where David was. So this group of people, like the religious leaders, are not judging with right judgment. They're judging by appearances. They're looking at Jesus, and they're mulling over the things that he's done, the things that he's said, and they're thinking through the Old Testament prophecies that speak to this coming Christ, and they conclude that Jesus can't be. This, this can't be the God. So they think they know that Jesus is from Galilee, and they know that the Christ is to be an offspring from David born from Bethlehem. And so therefore, they come to the conclusion that he's not the Christ. Now, I want us to notice a bit of irony here that John leaves un unaddressed. Uh, their reference to the scriptures are accurate, right? So their interpretation of where the Christ is to descend from and where he's to be born from, that's accurate. That's true. Yes, Christ is to be a descendant from David, and yes, Christ is to be born from Bethlehem. Psalm 89 verse 4, for example, says, I will establish your, speaking to David's, seed forever and build up your throne to all generations. And then two weeks ago, we saw in Micah chapter 5 verse 2, uh, this, but you, O Bethlehem, uh, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who's to be a ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. So they're rightly understanding the scriptures pertaining to the Christ. However, they do not rightly understand Jesus. If, you would have done, if they would have done their research, they would have judged with right judgment, then they would know that although Jesus grew up in Galilee, he was born in Bethlehem, right? We know that because of Luke, and we know that because, or because of Matthew and because of 
Luke. This part of the crowd has dismissed Jesus as the Christ because of a partially ill-informed understanding about Jesus. They've looked past the works of Jesus. They've looked past the words of Jesus, uh, the many witnesses that bear witness to Jesus, the scriptures, all of this. And they've rejected the idea of Jesus being the Messiah because of appearances. Now, what I struggled with this week is why does John leave their false interpretations of Jesus unresolved, right? Why doesn't John address their answer or answer their false understanding about Jesus here? Why does he leave their false opinions unresolved? Unlike Matthew, unlike Luke, John doesn't tell us the birth narrative of how Jesus was born in Bethlehem. And unlike Matthew and unlike Luke, John doesn't give us a genealogy of Jesus showing us how he is, in fact, a descendant of David. The crowd is rejecting Jesus as the Christ because of a misinformed perception about him. And John's main goal, which he tells us at the end of this gospel, is that we may believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that believe that he is the Christ and that in that we may have life. So why does John not take an, exam or an opportunity to clarify this? If I'm writing this letter, I would have said, yeah, but they're wrong. Jesus was born in Bethlehem. He was. This is how we know, right? That, that's how my mind works. So why does he leave their questions unresolved here? Why does he not capitalize on this opportunity to expose their misunderstanding about Jesus? As I wrestled through this this week, I began to realize that he does expose their misunderstanding about Jesus, but he does it in a very unfashionable way or a way that I wouldn't do, but I think is, is very um, wise and cunning. And, and I think we'll begin to see this as we journey through it. Rather than give us more inf information or evidence supporting Jesus as the Christ, John takes his flashlight, clicks it, and begins to, to shine the light into the, the depths of their hearts, exposing their inability to judge with right judgment, which should give us more evidence to the fact that Jesus is the Christ. We've come to a point in this gospel where John's beginning to force us, the readers, to look at the evidence and decide for ourselves. So up until this point, John has strategically laid out an abundance of evidence for Jesus being the Christ. And now, with the crowd, we're beginning to be forced to make decisions about who we believe Jesus is. And so the crowd here is making a judgment about Jesus strictly off of what they can see. And based off of what appears to be true, on a surface level, they've rejected Jesus as the Messiah. They were quick to write him off because of a misinformed understanding about him. Men and women, we do this all the time, right? We do this with God, and we do this with one another. We, we judge by appearances. So for an example, one may look at his or her current situations in life, what they're going through, and they're going through trials, they're going through tribulation, things are not going well for them, and so one may conclude God is not good. Right? We, we hear that all the time. Why does a good God allow bad things to happen? Based off of what one can see, they make decisions about who God is. Um, without learning about God, without going to his word, studying him, trying to understand him rightly, we come to conclusions based off of what we can see. But not only do we do that with God, we do that with one another. 
We live in a social media-driven world where stories are at the tip of our fingers that constantly pop up. And we quickly make judgments about men and women based off of appearances, based off of what we can see, and we're quick to condemn and we're quick to judge at that point. And oftentimes, things that we, we say that they're guilty of, things that we ourselves are guilty of. And so without learning more about Jesus, the crowd rejects him as a blasphemer. And I think that's what John is seeking to communicate here. Yes, Jesus is a descendant from David. Yes, he is born of Bethlehem. But the point that John is trying to communicate here is the hypocrisy that's found in their impartial judgments. Um, and so I think we see here that you can always find an excuse not to believe in Jesus. But I think we also see here that any excuse for unbelief is never going to be a valid excuse. And so John is seeking to show us that Jesus really is the Christ who is capable of setting you free from your sin. And any excuse that you have to reject Jesus as this Messiah is a surface-level illegitimate excuse. Anyone seriously searching to know the truth about Jesus will go to God's word, asking for wisdom, and will discover the truth about Jesus. We'll see that in a minute in the life of Nicodemus, but that's not the case for the crowd here. They're content to come to a conclusion about Jesus with the visible evidence that they have. So ironically, this portion of the crowd rightly understands the prophecies surrounding the Christ, but they don't rightly understand that the Christ is standing right before them in Jesus, offering them eternal life. So at this point in verse 43, there's a division among the people. Jesus' words are dividing the crowd right in the middle. Part of the crowd's connecting the dots. They're beginning to identify him as the Messiah, as the prophet. Another part of the crowd is rejecting him as a deceiver. And there's no middle ground of, of apathy in, when it comes to Jesus. You either submit to him as Lord, giving him your full attention, trust, and obedience, or you respond to him in hostility, rejecting him as a deceiver. And so I think the question that we have to ask is, which is true of us, right? Really meditating on that question. Do you submit to Jesus as Lord? Do you confess him? Do you believe in him or do you reject him? There's no middle ground. Um, you're either on one fence or the other. If you believe that Jesus is the Christ, and that means that you trust in him for eternal life, he is the one that you are submitting to. And he is the one who has given you the Holy Spirit so that you may be a blessing to those around you. If you've rejected Jesus, then you will continue to thirst and long for this life that is found only in Jesus. And eternal damnation will await you. So following Jesus' words, there's a division among the crowd. And some of them want to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. So why did no one lay hands on him? No one laid hands on him because verse 30 tells us his hour has not yet come. A few weeks ago, we were reminded that no persecution falls outside of the sovereign hand of God. The crowd did not lay a hand on Jesus because it was not in God's timing for him to do so or for them to do so. Yes, Jesus will eventually be arrested, but he, it's not his time. John continually directs our attention to the fact that the opposition Jesus faced was not outside of his control. It was God's plan to send Jesus into the world to redeem the world. 
So some of them wanted to arrest Jesus, but no one laid their hands on him. Now, as we continue to progress through this passage, we'll ironically see that those who continue to reject Jesus, claiming, to be, claiming him to be a deceiver, will actually be the ones who, one, deceived or deceived themselves, and two, are the ones who are seeking to deceive others. So they're guilty of the very thing that they're claiming Jesus to be guilty of. Their rejection of Jesus was not birthed out of rightful thinking. It was birthed out of self-righteous hypocrisy based upon appearances. Let's look at verses 45 through 46. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. Pause. So two weeks ago in verse 32, we see the Pharisees send the, the officers to go arrest Jesus. And following Jesus' invitation to come and drink from him, the officers come back and they're like, man, I've never heard anybody speak like this. No one has ever spoke like this man. Feel the weight of that. The officers heard firsthand the message of Jesus, and rather than arrest him as a blasphemer, which they were sent to do, they come back saying to the religious leaders, this man's bearing a message that we've never heard. We couldn't arrest him because they've never heard anyone say the things that Jesus is saying. They were sent to arrest him as a deceiver. They come back thinking he's a truth bearer. They're saying to the teachers, right, the, the people that they're speaking to, the, the religious leaders, the Pharisees, those who are teaching the law, we've never heard anyone teach. We've heard you teach, but this man's teaching laps around you, right? We've never heard anyone speak like he's speaking. Um, but Jesus is speaking. He's speaking with an authority that we've never heard. We couldn't um, do what you sent us to do because of the message that they're proclaiming, or that Jesus is proclaiming. This leads the Pharisees to say in verse 7, Have you also been deceived? So this question uh, shows us exactly what the Pharisees thought about Jesus. Have you also been deceived? Tells us that they believed Jesus was deceiving. They believe that Jesus is a deceiver, one who's um, teaching lies, manipulating truth, and leading the ignorant crowd into deception. They believed the crowd had been deceived, and they were asking if the officers had been deceived as well. They then say, have any of the authorities or Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. I, I hope that we see the arrogance that's found in these verses, where there's a widespread confusion over who Jesus is, the Pharisees are certain that they know the truth. They're essentially saying to the officers, none of us have believed in Jesus, therefore you shouldn't believe in him either. The evidence they're giving to support the idea that Jesus is not the Christ is themselves. Have any of the authorities, have any of the Pharisees believed in him? The way they ask this, it, it, there's no other answer than no. Right? Have any of us believed in him? So at this point, their justification for why Jesus cannot be the Messiah has nothing to do with Jesus and everything to do with their assessment of Jesus. He cannot be the Messiah because we have not believed in him. So never mind the works that Jesus has done, never mind the words he's proclaimed, we don't believe in him, so therefore you shouldn't either. They're seeking to strip the officers of any opportunity to decide for themselves and they're seeking to pressure them into placing their hope and confidence into their expert opinions. They're saying, whose job is it to study the scriptures? It's mine. It's our job to study the scriptures. 
And so none of us have believed in him, and so therefore you shouldn't either. If you want to believe in him, then you're going to be like those who are accursed, those idiots out there. The religious leaders are degrading those in the crowd who have believed in Jesus. They're claiming that the crowd has brought condemnation upon themselves for believing in Jesus. They're calling them ignorant fools who do not know the law. And I think there's yet again great irony that John wants us to pick up on here. Ironically, those who are supposed to know the law don't recognize the giver of the law and the one that all of the law points to, which is Jesus. The ones who boasted in their wisdom and expert knowledge are pointing their fingers, claiming that others are deceived, when in fact they are the ones who are deceived themselves. And ironically, this foolish crowd that is accursed and that does not know the law, they're the ones who know the truth. So there's great irony here. And this is beautifully highlighted by John uh, in verse 50 all the more by highlighting Nicodemus. Look at verse 50. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing in learning what he does. So Nicodemus is mentioned three times in the Gospel of John. He's mentioned back in John chapter, anybody know? Three. three. Good. I don't know who said that, but good job. He's mentioned now, and then he's mentioned in John chapter 19. So there's a couple details that John wants us to notice here in verse 50 pertaining to Nicodemus. He first wants to remind us that Nicodemus had previously gone to Jesus with questions. So Nicodemus, who had gone to him before, right? So that's an important detail that John wants us to think of. So Nicodemus, back in John chapter 3, went to Jesus at night, went to him in darkness, and he's like, hey, Jesus, we've seen the works that you've done. We know that a teacher comes from, we know that you're a teacher who comes from God. We know that no man can do the things that you're doing. So that he comes to him asking questions. And Jesus then tells Nicodemus that unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So Nicodemus, this religious, religiously superior human being, individual, one who observes the law really well, cannot inherit or see the kingdom of God unless he's born again. So Jesus is teaching him the truth of the gospel. And Nicodemus is scratching his head at this point. How can I be born again? Do I have to enter into my mother's womb? I don't get how this works. So in John chapter 3, we see Jesus or Nicodemus go to Jesus with questions. Jesus exposed to him the gospel. So John wants to remind us here that Nicodemus has heard the gospel clearly taught to him. He knows the truth about Jesus because he's gone to him asking questions. And now he's clearly wrestling through the words Jesus has previously spoken to him. Nicodemus, unlike his counterparts, is seeking to judge with right judgment when it comes to Jesus. But not only that, John also wants us to, to remind us that Nicodemus was a Pharisee. Um, and so Nicodemus, who had gone to him before, and who was one of them? Who's them? The Pharisees, the religious leaders, right? So he's one of them. He's a part of the crowd that is zealous for the law and is boasting in their unbelief at this point. Now, it's unclear at this point whether or not Nicodemus believes himself. I think at the end of this gospel, 
we'll see clearly that Nicodemus does believe, that he is a believer. In John chapter 19, when everyone leaves, Nicodemus brings oil and myrrh and buries Jesus, right? So I think in John chapter 19, we see Nicodemus go to him, treating him as Lord, believing in him. But at this point in the gospel, I think John is showing us the progression of Nicodemus, right? Where he went and heard the gospel message in John chapter 3. He's now wrestling with that message in John chapter 7. And he will then be a believer of this message in John chapter 19. And I think this reminds us that well, somewhere between John chapter 3 and John 19, Nicodemus becomes a believer. At that point, at what point, we're not sure, right? Somewhere in between those two points, he becomes a believer. I think that reminds us this, that evangelism isn't always a preach once, convert immediately process, right? So it's not, hey, we go and share our faith, and then somebody immediately becomes a believer. That very well may be the case, and that's what we hope and pray for. But sometimes there's a a process of John chapter 3 to John chapter 19 where people hear the gospel message. We continue to share and live out that gospel message. And this unbeliever wrestles through this truth. And then at some point later on, they may decide, hopefully, to then become a believer. So may the slow conversion process of Nicodemus comfort us in our evangelism. May we not get discouraged in our sharing of our faith, when we, we don't see any fruit now, may we continue to press on sharing the hopeful message of the gospel, hoping that eventually um, one will come to faith. So continue to preach, continue to pray, um, don't grow weary. Um, Nicodemus is a comforting example of that. So at this, at this moment, it's unclear whether or not Nicodemus believes But what is clear is that Nicodemus is not on the same page as the rest of his crew, right? So he's beginning to challenge his counterparts, the Pharisees' logic, by asking, look at this, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? So first, notice the difference in how he and the Pharisees refer to the law. Unlike the Pharisees, who refer to the law as the law, Nicodemus now calls it our law. Law. So where the Pharisees are using the law as a tool to bring condemnation against others, Nicodemus is using the law uh, to bring clarity to both himself and others. The Pharisees' language reeks of arrogance and pride, while Nicodemus' words have the pleasant aroma of humble submission. Nicodemus, unlike his counterparts, is seeking to judge with right judgment. Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does. Here he's referencing three different passages found in Deuteronomy. You can jot these down. We're not going to read them. Deuteronomy 1, uh, verses 16 through 17. Deuteronomy 17, verses 2 through 6. And then Deuteronomy 19, verses 15 through 19, uh, which these, in summary, state that a person must be heard and that evidence and witnesses must be considered before a person can be charged as being guilty. Um, So Nicodemus is exposing the Pharisees' inability to keep the law. If I say Matt punched me in the face, and then everybody accepts that as true without any evidence, without any witnesses or anything, that would be a foolish judgment, right? My face is not bloody. 
is not bruised. And so what they're doing here, that may be a terrible example. I made it up on the spot. But, but what they're doing here is they're making judgments based off of appearances without um, doing any digging, without asking any questions. So the Pharisees, um, or Nicodemus, is exposing their inability to judge with right judgment. John is giving us more evidence to the fact that Jesus is the Christ. The Pharisees then respond to Jesus with the question, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophets arise from Galilee. So they're mockingly asking him, What are you on Jesus' team too? Are you from Galilee as well? If you knew the scriptures, then you would know that no prophet comes from Galilee. And once again, their words here ironically fall short of being truthful because there was actually two prophets that come from Galilee, Jonah and Nahum. So listen, the, the more we progress through this gospel, the more we will see or begin to see the sinful hypocrisy of man being exposed and the, the righteousness of Jesus magnified. The crowd, the religious leaders are judging based off of appearances and although they are zealous for the law, they do not know God and they are not able to recognize Jesus as the Christ. They are rejecting him as the Christ. And the more we see the hypocrisy of the religious leaders exposed, I hope we see more and more the hypocrisy of our own lives exposed. And so I hope and pray that by the power of the Holy Spirit, we put to death our own hypocrisy. Right? My prayer is that, one, we will constantly be reminded that our ability to do good works does not grant us salvation. We are not saved by us doing X, Y, or Z. We're saved by God's grace that is found in Christ Jesus. Jesus lived the sinless life that we could not live. Jesus took the punishment that we deserve for our wickedness upon himself on the cross. And Jesus rose from the, get, the grave, giving us hope. That is our hope for salvation. Our hope for salvation is not found in your ability to do good things. And so the religious leaders knew God's word and could, not, or could keep his word externally. They could do all of these things. They could go and observe the feast. They could make sacrifices. They could do all of these religious works. They could go to Harbor Community Church and set up chairs every single week faithfully. They could set up pipe and drapes. We know that those are the true righteous ones of our church, right? And so they could do all of these good things, but their heart is far from God. I think that's a scary reality for all of us is that we can do good things and we can get in a rhythm of doing good things but yet be far from God and not know him. And so my prayer is that we will um, be reminded constantly that our ability to do good works does not grant us salvation. May we trust in the hope of the gospel all the more. And then my prayer also practically is that we'll be a people who are slow to make judgments about others um, without first learning what those people do. So hostility and division is a fruit of making judgments about others without learning about all they do. And so husbands and wives, don't make judgments about your spouse without learning his, the, his or her side of the story, right? Christian brothers and sisters, don't make judgments about one another without learning his or her side of the story. May we be quick to pursue peace and harmony within our families, within our church body. 
And may we not be quick to make judgments about others without learning all of the facts. May we be slow to go to social media, tweeting, posting, um, blasting men and women for things that we don't know anything about. May we be people who are quick to maintain unity. Let's pray. Father, we love you. And God, we thank you. God, we thank you for the hope of the gospel. God, as we progress through this gospel all the more, may our eyes be enlightened to the truth that Jesus is, in fact, the Christ. Jesus is, in fact, the blameless one. Jesus is, in fact, our only hope for salvation. God, if there's anybody in here who does not believe that to be true, Holy Spirit, enlighten the eyes of their hearts. May they rightly understand that they are in desperate need of Christ. God, I pray for anyone in here who's just going through a rut spiritually. Holy Spirit, comfort them. Holy Spirit, restore the joy of their salvation. God, I pray that we will be quick to confess our hypocrisy and that we will be doers of the word, not hearers only. And it's in your son's name that we pray. Amen. So as we close, may the God...